Hey, hello, my name is Nathan Alberson. I of the book. Hello, my name is Nathan Alberson. <laughs> Jake just did some hilarious mime for, for all you listeners out there. I'm sure you enjoyed that. He was flipping a page. <laughs> yeah. Everybody um, knows this is so scripted. Right. <laughs> My name is Nathan. I'm your humble and obedient host. I'm here with Jacob Menzel, Pastor Jacob Menzel, the pastor who is a master of what, Jake? Books. Of books. (laughs) And, of course, (laughs) the guy who is not a pastor and yet... I have my masters. (laughs) Ooh. Ooh, He's more of a master than I am. He's not one of those pastors, but he has his masters (laughs) on books. And his name is Brandon Chastine. How you doing, Brandon? Doing great. We are here today to do our second part, part two, as I like to call it, of the books that formed us when we were kids, the books that we really loved. So let's jump right in. Number two, Jake. <laughs> well, my number two is not one of those uh, <laughs> that you go back to over and over again. This is the next big embarrassment on my list. <laughs> I think we found our title for this episode. It's the Odyssey. What, the Odyssey? It's the Odyssey. (laughs) So cliche. No, it's not the Odyssey. It's John Grisham. (laughs) Like the autobiography of? (laughs) No, just they're all the same. They're all the same, yeah. (laughs) What's your favorite John Grisham? I have no idea. The The Firm? firm? Was it the, did he Maybe. write the Pelican Brief? He did. <laughs> he did write the Pelican Brief. <laughs> ah, what was the Pelican Brief about? I remember it was about Julia Roberts. <laughs> Something to do with pelicans. Yeah, it was about 250 pages long. <laughs> well, so I think I was going on vacation with my mom. I had a cool uncle. was looking for something to read while I was there. And I was probably in the 12 to 14 range, maybe 13, 14 years old. I said, well, here, take this. And he gave me a Grisham novel. was able to plow through it pretty quickly through vacation. And I developed something of a sweet tooth for Grisham there for just a couple years. Uh, at the time, you know, I was trying to figure out who I was supposed to be. And a lot of my life was baseball, apple pie in America. And uh, they appealed to me in a very uh, basic sense of, you know, what, what do I want to do with my life? You know, I was thinking about law and maybe even politics, you know, because I had watched The West Wing or something dumb like that. And um, so I feel kind of silly saying it, but when I think back on, you know, what what shaped me as a reader, you know, I read lots of good things and I enjoyed lots of good things, but I always wanted some of the good things to be as fun or as engaging or as easy as as the, the junk food. Mm-hmm. Uh, and was trying to find sort of that sweet spot of escape and payoff. They didn't do it for me. It's good stuff up from Goosebumps. <laughs> yeah. I never, I tried to read The Firm one time, I think, just because it was a popular movie that I'd probably seen, but I never got through a Grisham. I don't know. It didn't do it for me. And the, lar- the big reason was we didn't have Grisham in our house, I don't think. My dad, what he read was like Edgar Rice Burroughs, um, Louis Lamar. And so I read some of that stuff. 
You're not missing much if you've never read Grisham. It, yeah. It's just one of those things. As th- and some people read around the same time, you know, Clancy or Crichton. Sure. Mine was sort of, of the fabric. Mine was Stephen King. Did you have one, Brandon? Well, Frank Peretti. Uh, he falls into that category I think pretty easily. Yeah. This present darkness, piercing the darkness. Mm-hmm. I read those. Those things are I junk, would have read them. junk food for Christian housewives. Like, it's all but I read like Louis Lamar. He was a Western writer. Oh, I, read, sure. I read some of him. That was fun stuff to read. I never really got into Tarzan like my dad did. But some Stephen King. If the books were in our house, I would have read them. I was a fanatical library goer from the earliest age. Really? Yeah, I would mm. pester my parents to take me to the library. And so I pretty much read whatever I wanted to because I just didn't let my parents see what I got from the library. That's one way you can do it, kids, if you're if you're listening. Pro li- tip. Yeah, pro tip. <laughs> Life hack. <laughs> the library doesn't really care what you get and what age you are. Let me just tell you, the library is a bunch of hippies, and uh, they'll pretty much let you do what you want. So uh, I think uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to defend Jake a little bit. I think you can tell a lot about a man by his junk, and everybody has junk. And I think Grisham is probably better junk than a lot of guys have. I think mm-hmm. just Grisham certainly would be a lot more edifying than my Stephen King. Stephen King's actually a pretty good writer, but boy, does he pile on the stuff that no godly person should ever want to be reading. I mean, at least the, maybe there was something in you lo- loved m- a mom in America and apple pie, maybe a good thing that was trying to feed on something out of Grisham. I mean, you eat junk food because you're hungry. Right, and I was... I think trying to fit into what I thought I was supposed to fit into, which was this sort of idealistic American patriotic guy. And, you know, Grisham's stuff, it's not like that, but it's always, you know, that one guy who's going to bring down the corrupt power and he's going to use the law to do it. And so at least in that sense, there was some idealism about it. So, yeah, I was just trying to find meaning from my life. And it wasn't like I was looking in Grisham for it, but he sort of fed part of that that sense of yeah you know i'm starting to see the corruption of the world that we live in and i want to want to do something about it. i want my life to matter and you know the law is the way maybe to do that or to have some kind of meaningful impact some kind of meaningful way to spend my life that wasn't completely worthless which is sort of i can sort of sense looking back the beginnings of desperation really and it, it didn't take long for me to be done with Grisham and that whole phase of my life. And but but there it was to to move into your number one pick, which we'll hear about in a little bit. That's right. What I was gonna say though is there's there's an essay that C.S. Lewis has somewhere, I believe, and he might even be riffing on Chesterton. I don't know, but he's. Uh, I'm sorry to name drop Lewis and Chesterton, but whatever. He's talking about how Brandon might be able to remember how he says it a little bit better than I can. He's talking about how every man has poetry. It's just that some men can't allow themselves to call it that. So they find their poetry in their pulp stories. They bring poetry with them to things like Tarzan or to things like John Grisham or to whatever they're reading. You know, they find and in your case, maybe an American idealism or something that who knows whether Grisham even had that, but it was what you needed. And it was the poetry that without even knowing it, you brought. And I think that's what bad pulp at its best can at least allow for you to imaginatively fill in the gaps and bring some of what you Mm -hmm. need to the story. And good pulp writers will find ways of encouraging you to do that, actually, I think. Hmm. Uh, I think a good pulp writer will actually leave certain things blank or leave things stereotypical or leave things flat so that his readers can 
bring themselves bring themselves or their own i'm convinced that's what you know make fun of stephen king all you want for having flat characters and two-dimensional kind of villains and stuff but i think that's if he was any better nobody would like him what people like is when the hero has a girlfriend in stephen king you can think of your girlfriend and you can plug her in because the one that stephen king wrote is nothing and the hero that he wrote is nobody so you can just plug yourself into it and it makes his books primal and powerful in a way that they wouldn't be if they were any better yeah did you say your number two no No. i didn't say my number two we're transitioning out of uh embarrassment into uh Ah, this may be embarrassment well first describe the book brandon just picked up a paperback that is torn to shreds it has no cover and no it's, back. It's missing. Well, you can see it's an Everyman Library book. Yeah, classic. It used to have a green cover to it. It's missing up to page eight of the introduction. The introduction has been read. There are lots of words underlined. You underlined words in the introduction. Well, this is the book. I read it first, I guess. When <laughs> I was these just vocabulary words for you. Yeah, it is just vocabulary. Portentious, sidled, propitiation. The words that I didn't know what they meant because I was laudanum. I don't remember when I first read it. I mean, twelve. But well, yeah. And then it stops. I mean, there are no underlined <laughs> words. No, I think it's more <laughs> towards... I, I crossed that one out because I guess I figured out what it meant. <laughs> <laughs> so what is this book, pray tell? It is David Copperfield All by right. Charles Dickens. Uh-huh. Um, this book, this is was my awakening into the world of the novel. Up in, like I was reading Trailblazers, all that stuff. I was fighting pretty hard against doing school and my mom brought this book out and said I might want to read it. And so I did, and I fell in love with it. And I didn't stop after that. So Dickens was my gateway drug into the world of fiction, basically. (laughs) Um, So I had storytelling. I love storytelling, but Dickens opened up the world of literature and fiction to me. And um, so I read this, and then I went on to read pretty much most of his works. And then um, Jane Austen, and the world just got bigger and better, and then C.S. Lewis and that other friend brought he brought in C.S. Lewis and kind of wrecked things for a while with Fantasties and all that. <laughs> so this is actually going back a couple of years before Fantasties. But with Dickens, I I saw the the beauty of an intricate, well thought out plot and characters that were engaging and a story that was moving. I didn't know about sentimentalism at the time and how my heartstrings were being played. I mean, I was young, but this novel blew up my world over, you know, just a couple of days. And yeah, it's foundational to um, me falling in love with literature. Is it still your favorite Dickens or is it just your gateway drug Dickens? I think the best Dickens is Bleak House, without a doubt. It's where he is not Dickens anymore. He's a serious writer. But I love his early kind of Nicholas Nickleby, you know. (laughs) The stuff that everyone makes fun of. Is good, and David Copperfield is—it's fantastic. It's really good. Does David Copperfield? I don't actually remember off the top of my head. Does it come kind of? Is it sort of a bridge in between the the more early crazy Nicholas Nickleby old yeah, Curiosity Shop and the more serious Great Expectations stuff to come later? Yeah, it's right there towards the end. This he he said that this was his favorite of his books. Um, it's written in first person, and a lot of people say that David is Charles Dickens. And so there's a lot of wish fulfillment and a lot of dangers, actually, to young people in this book. You mean his wife, his first yeah, wife. Yeah, Dora, and then he basically yeah. wishes her dead, and so she dies <laughs> right. so that he can go and marry Agnes. Right. <laughs> Uri- and, but Uriah Heep is a fantastic, weird, nasty Iconic. character. Yeah, mm. he's a, so there's a lot of 
Dickens knew how to create a vivid character. Well, Mr. Macabre, let's not forget about him. Yeah. One of the Dickens' great creations. He's hilarious. Yeah. And Traddles. And there are these characters that they seem like they're um, stock characters, cartoons almost, but they make the story for Dickens. I think Dickens actually, in a weird way, proves my point about Pulp Fiction. If Dickens had been any better, then no one would care about Dickens today. Yeah. What makes Dickens great is the fact that he's willing to just charge ahead with gusto, to just tell a story with crazy twists, you know, oh, this person's his uncle, and this guy turned out being this guy's father, and the woman from the beginning is actually rich. It's the, you know, he's willing to just uh, charge ahead and, and write in a populist manner, be sentimental. He's not afraid to suck. I mean, mm-hmm. he's not afraid to write terrible passages that somebody like Oscar Wilde can just make, what is it that Oscar Wilde famously said, you know, he said, no one can read the death of little Nell without laughing, which uh, I think Chesterton took great umbrage at. Chesterton loved Dickens. Yeah, Chesterton has a whole book on Dickens. Yeah. But, uh, you know, Dickens is one of those things, he's easy to make fun of. He sucks sometimes, but if he had been any better, then we wouldn't be talking about him because his greatness and his suckitude uh, (laughs) go hand in hand. He failed immensely and quite often. Right. <laughs> even in his even in his better novels, like Bleak House, there's a part where the young chimney sweep dies, and the author just randomly comes in and starts quoting the Lord's Prayer <laughs> as they all start, and then it'll have a line like, "And he gasped, I will be done." And he gasped again, and then he, and then he dies. And it's, right. it's weird and it's silly, and it, he's playing on your heartstrings. But then at the same time, he has really wonderful scenes. Oh, sure. His weird characters when they are good they're fantastic like mr micawber mm-hmm. and then um i think it's in david copperfield where you have the guy who randomly shoots off the cannon he's the old general isn't that, or is that great is expectation? Mary poppins i think is what oh, you're okay. <laughs> <laughs> the great dickens classic yeah, the great dickens. well she, she must have stole it from dickens <laughs> but the other thing dickens did for me was he yeah he introduced me to the world of the long novel mm-hmm. of these big sprawling worlds that this author introduces you to and that you don't want to leave characters that you love their stories and get invested in the story and learn from their stories. And yeah. I think Dickens is hurt a lot by wishbone, <laughs> by wishbone okay. syndrome. In other words, everybody knows the stories. So you can't read, you just can't come to Oliver Twist or Tale of Two Cities fresh. And it's too bad. I mean, if you don't, if you happen to not know how Oliver Twist goes or how Tale of Two Cities ends, keep yourself that way and read those books because part of the fun of Dickens is is the plot construction. And I remember reading somewhere about the steamer from London getting to America with copies of the latest of Dickens, you know, the latest installments in the magazines and people yelling up to the ship, does little Nell live? Or I don't know what the plot point was, but they'd been waiting all week for this ship to get in to find out what was going to happen. He was the John Grisham of his age. Right. Everybody. He was a Pulp Fiction writer. But the thing is, is I keep hitting on how important the voice of the author Mm -hmm. is. And you lose it when you get these wishbone melting down distillations. <laughs> Not distillation, because yeah, <laughs> distillation usually makes things, better. makes good things. Yeah, uh, where it, when all you get is the plot and the characters, it's going to drive you crazy. Mm. Because his characters are not always the greatest characters, and his plots are sometimes cheesy, like Oliver Twist, you know, come on. Yeah. But when Dickens is telling the story to you, it's different. Mm-hmm. So like, I mean, the... Whether I shall turn out to be the hero of my own life or whether the station will be held by anybody else, these pages must show. He's just got a, has a warmth and a good narrative quality to him that you want to read what he's written. Mm-hmm. And so that, the strength of the writer, I think Dickens is, 
who convinced me that I at least wanted to read for the rest of my life and briefly thought that I wanted to be an author. Yeah, I love Dickens. I'm not as I'm not as well versed in him as you are, although he's one of those guys you see movie versions, you know, every Christmas you're going to have to watch a version of The Christmas Carol and he's kind of ubiquitous, hard to escape. He wrote one of the great horror stories actually that shows up in every anthology the anthology i was talking about earlier that had the monkey's paw and sleepy hollow you get one of those anthologies that has you know the great victorian ghost stories mr james dickens wrote one of the best it's called the signal man i mean christmas carol is one of the great horror stories written i think i'd put it in my my greatest of horror anthology for sure certainly scared me as a kid dickens also supplied my um introduction to being a freshman in college because there was someone who was reading dickens and i went up thought i was i thought hey we'll be buds i can just go sit down with this guy and he just like completely blew me off (laughs) walked away refused to talk to me so (laughs) what a beautiful story yeah so there you go. So people that read Dickens hey, are jerks. Are, say, <laughs> I see you're reading Dickens. Let's be, say, well, let's be best friends forever. I'm going to go sit over there. <laughs> My number two, I guess it ties into you guys' number two in that I read it just for a sheer love of story. I read it like you'd read a pulp story, like you'd read Grisham, like you'd read, like you read Dickens. I just wanted a good story. And uh, in this case, you know, I've always loved detective stories. What the book gave me, I mean, it had all the genre tropes that I was looking for. But what this book actually did for me, and I think I must have been 12 or 13, is it's the first book or one of the first books where I really remember being conscious of style and of being impressed with someone's prose style and the way that someone put the words together I'd read, I guess, some higher, older stuff where where style is just assumed, you know, something like Shakespeare. It's like, well, of course, that's nothing but style, you know, or Dante or something like that. I've, I'd read, you know, it's dorky that I read Dante that young, but but it's the first book that I remember being conscious of it being a modern book, being set more or less in, you know, a time with telephones and cars and all that stuff. And yet the style was what stood out to me. And the book is, really, it's all the Philip Marlowe stories. There's seven novels and a bunch of short stories by Raymond Chandler. But the one that I picked was the first Philip Marlowe novel, which is The Big Sleep uh, by Raymond Chandler, which is the first one that I read. And I just picked it up because I knew I liked noir and detectives and that kind of stuff. I always liked Sherlock Holmes. You know, I knew the cliches. I knew femme fatales and thugs and alleyways and California kind of. I knew what people associate with things like Raymond Chandler. I knew the overworked purple kind of detective metaphors, uh, which Raymond Chandler actually created those. I mean, he's he's famous for those little extended metaphors. She was a blonde. She was a blonde to make a bishop kick a hole through a stained glass window. So anytime you see like Garrison Keillor doing his guy noir or any kind of detective spoof. The the blonde in the red dress walks into the office. That's that's just pure Chandler. He came out of the pulp tradition. He didn't invent detective stories. He didn't invent hard-boiled detective stories. Uh, that would have been Dashiell Hammett, who wrote The Maltese Falcon. That was really the first Sam Spade, you know, the tough detective guy, uh, which I liked all that stuff. But what Chandler brought to it was a poetry and a style. And I'm going to be super lame and actually read the passage that I remember. If you don't like it, you can listen to a different podcast. 
<laughs> or just press the little, if you're on iTunes or whatever, you can just press the little 15 second forward thing until you get to the part where I stop reading this. But I don't know how to, I tried to find, Can you can quote the little quips like she was a blonde to make a bishop kick a hole in a stained glass window. And obviously that's fantastic. Uh, and Chandler had all kinds of those, you know, he was about as inconspicuous as a tarantula on an angel food cake is another famous <laughs> one, which I love. Um <laughs> He stood out like a kangaroo in a dinner jacket. You know, I mean, Chandler created that stuff. But he also said some just beautiful poet. He said, there's nothing emptier than an empty swimming pool. That's poetry. I don't know yeah. why that's poetry. I don't know why that resonates with me. But it's just true. There's nothing emptier than an empty swimming pool. Good job, Chandler. So he's got those little quips. But the only the only way I could think of to make our readers be excited about, or our listeners, our readers, <laughs> the only way I could think of to make you guys understand and other people understand what I loved about Chandler was just to read a little extended passage from him. And I think you'll get the idea of what I'm talking about. So I'm going to be a dork and do that. So this is from the beginning of The Big Sleep. This is when Philip Marlowe, the detective, first arrives at this rich old man's house. Who The rich old man, of course, is going to give him a case to solve. And this is his approach to to the rich old man. We went out at the French doors and along a smooth red flagged path that skirted the far side of the lawn from the garage. The boyish looking chauffeur had a big black and chromium sedan out now and was dusting that. The path took us along to the side of the greenhouse, and the butler opened a door for me and stood aside. It opened into a sort of vestibule that was about as warm as a slow oven. He came in after me, shut the outer door, opened an inner door, and we went through that. Then it was really hot. The air was thick, wet, steamy, and larded with the cloying smell of tropical orchids in bloom. The glass walls and roof were heavily misted, and big drops of moisture splashed down on the plants. The light had an unreal greenish color, like light filtered through an aquarium tank. The plants filled the place, a forest of them with nasty, meaty leaves and stalks like the newly washed fingers of dead men. They smelled as overpowering as boiling alcohol under a blanket. That's that's my quote. So, I know, like the air larded with the smell of the flowers and all that. It was, it was good. Yeah, it was my introduction to style. It was my introduction to the fact that you could incorporate style into something modern and make it work, that you didn't have to be Shakespeare, but that you could still go for the big metaphor. You could still go for, and you could fail. I mean, Chandler probably fails in that passage. You know, there's one too many of those those little similes. But the similes are good. You know, the plants like Dead Men's Fingers and stuff like that. And the fact that it's all kind of in this modern vernacular, and you can kind of imagine that it's a tough-talking detective telling you the story, but there's an elegance to it. So that was my that was my introduction to to prose style, mm-hmm. really. Maybe it needed to be it needed to be something pulpy and fun, and it needed to be something. I mean, if you'd what would be the great prose stylist of the 20th century? You know, if you'd given me Hemingway. one of them, yeah, Hemingway, I wouldn't have quite got. I needed somebody yeah. to smack me over the head with what they were doing. Do you guys remember anything about when you were conscious of style? Oddly enough, yeah, I think it was for someone who's surprisingly not on my list, which is Flannery O'Connor. I read one of her short stories in high school, or maybe middle school, and was aware of how structured and well thought out her sentences were. But it didn't do enough for me at the time. I can't think of a moment in particular or an author that really made me conscious of style. I, f- I feel like I just sort of matured into 
recognizing it. I remember like with movies too, always being swept up by the story and then one day realizing, you know, somebody has to put these shots together and isn't it interesting how yeah. they do it yeah. and whether it's a close right. up. And now when I watch a movie, there's a part of my brain that's always evaluating it on that level where when I was a young person, I guess this is, I'm saying something that's obvious that's true of all of us in some ways, but I don't. You, you can watch a movie or read a book and evaluate it just on story level, and, and I think a lot of people, even adults, do that. But there's something kind of fun about knowing the mechanics and seeing somebody that can be playful with them, like Chandler, or do a certain thing or get an effect out of them, like Flannery O'Connor. I think maybe maybe for me, the those moments were always negative. Hmm. because I love so much. It was so, to me, I mean, you can see by some of the things I've chosen. I've not chosen some of the things that maybe moved me the most, but things that provided me with the escape I was looking for. And so anybody that, whose who's personal style drew attention to itself and drew me out of the story, hmm. made me notice it, I didn't like that. And so, uh, but, but it's usually, you know, in a bad way. It was never like... Oh, wow, that was really beautifully done. Yeah, I would say as far as style, not so much f- fiction opened my eyes to that, but uh, C.S. Lewis, mm-hmm. try, trying to write essays in high school and then wishing that I could write as well as Lewis and be as witty as Chesterton and these guys, and then trying to be that but failing miserably. All right, guys, so it's time to talk about the number one book that made us who we are, that influenced us, that we liked as kids. Let's go ahead and start with Mr. Jacob Mensel, but I want to maybe recap a little bit, Jake, because I think your story, the whole story that you've been telling us on this uh, amazing podcast is important for us to bear in mind while we hear your number one. Obviously, we've just heard it, but let's recap real fast. Okay, so the quick rundown is number five was C.S. Lewis because I needed an escape and he gave me a really wonderful place to escape to in Narnia. Number four was uh, R.L. Stein who gave me a place to escape that was not embarrassing to my friends when I was eight, nine, ten years old in the Goosebumps series. Number three was Mark Twain. And uh, Twain was, for me, somebody that I could uh, really dig uh, the way that he made fun of everybody, sort of who I was. I felt like I was in on the joke, so I felt like I sort of had a friend and an author maybe for the first time. That was sort of a shaping influence in my middle school years. And then there was Grisham. It was just another escape, that's all. Um um, slightly more mature escape than R.L. Stein was. So the word escape figures in all these books is maybe not so much Twain, but is that basically what literature was? Yeah. I, so maybe the best answer to that question is that, yeah, I spent a lot of my life wanting to escape the reality of my life, and I would do that any way I could. I learned early on that books were a great place to get lost and escape. And so I just was looking always for something that would suck me in and make me forget about everything else around me um, and take up an afternoon or take up a day or, you know, a day of vacation or a day of whatever. And also maybe get me out of some work because books were sort of the one, one excuse for not doing your chores or whatever around my house that you might be able to get away with. So, yeah, so then Grisham, you know, he was, he sort of fit my, uh, middle-class American understanding of myself. And um, and then I came to high school, and then I hit Shakespeare. And Shakespeare was a completely different animal. It was something from a different, another world for me. 
Mm-hmm. And uh, it changed everything. Changed. Uh, Do you remember I, a specific play? Or no, I don't. I remember actually just being forced to read. Uh, so, so I reading to me was this precious thing for pleasure and escape. So what that meant was I never actually read anything ever that was required of me in school all the way up. I just wouldn't read it. If it was required, I wouldn't read it. I would, I would have the literature anthologies, and I'd read everything else. But, but I, I didn't want. I don't know if it was, you know, it was, certainly it was a laziness was a big factor in it, but there was some other psychological thing going on where I didn't want that precious, beautiful thing to be tainted with the feeling of work. I was trying to escape from everything, including work. So, so, but then I had a teacher in my freshman year of high school who was smart enough to know how to quiz and test in such a way that you had to read. You had to read or you were going to fail. Um, because she was going to ask you what color Pip's bag was, you know, when the bad men came or whatever. And you weren't going to get that from Cliff Notes or you, or, or having a good understanding of plot. You weren't going to be able to deduce that, that detail, which is how I gotten by and up to that point, you know, just sort of try to get into the writer's head, figure out what was coming next. And then I don't have to worry about it. Um, but you just couldn't do that in her class, and so I had to read, and I had to read Shakespeare, and I, uh, I was just blown away, and I was blown away first in that I was humbled. I was humbled out of my Mark Twainish sensibilities that I got people, I understood people, I understood myself, and I sat back and made fun of them with Twain. Shakespeare was just on, operating on a completely different level with his understanding of people and human nature, and I, it was humbling to me. I felt like he knew me better than I knew myself, and I don't think I'd ever felt that way before about anybody. Mm-hmm. And then he brought something else to his plays and his stories that nobody had ever seen had done, which was a real compassion for every one of his mm-hmm. characters I felt he just oozed with compassion for, which, of course, was completely absent from Twain, at least as I understood it reading it through you know, the filter of my own adolescent self. But I just found suddenly there was a world that I wanted to be a part of. I I would have been happy to live in one of Shakespeare's tragedies. I would have been happy to be one of Shakespeare's villains just to feel known and loved, cared for the way that I felt like Shakespeare understood and cared for his characters. And so that really sort of changed a lot just about how I looked at life, how I thought about myself, how I looked at literature, how I looked at even my future, what I wanted to be, what I wanted to do with my life. It was just a total reorientation because I I had really bought into, I think, a philosophical, rationalistic sort of worldview that I was really trying hard to fit myself into it. It never worked. It was never right. You know, I tried it. I tried to be mathematical or cold or whatever, and just it wasn't who I was. It was like trying to swim upstream or something, and all of a sudden, Shakespeare opened up this whole world that was richer and more colorful and more full and alive. It made everything else seem like black and white. So, yeah. And uh, and really also made me believe, I think, I could be known and loved and, uh, in in that that sort of way. And so... A couple of years later, I ended up becoming a Christian, and I don't want to pretend like Shakespeare had a huge part in it, but you know maybe he had a part. Yeah, God used him. What's interesting to me about hearing you talk is, and I think it's good. I hope I hope you don't feel put on the spot by me saying this. You haven't said a word about his poetry yet. <laughs> no, or no. his language. I think 
it's interesting that he swept you up in such a way that in talking about it, you haven't felt the need to say anything about. Let's matchless, but yeah, well, that's not matchless. the thing. That, that's not the thing that that drew me in. That's not the thing that mattered. My love for Shakespeare has absolutely nothing to do with. Maybe I shouldn't say nothing to do, but has very little to do with his master mastery of the English language, and very much to do with his mastery of of men. Well, of, if he didn't have that story. mastery, I don't think. I mean, his plays would be such cold things. They might have that beautiful language, but I mean, you ever try reading an Elizabethan? melodrama that's not by Shakespeare, you know, yep. some of those other guys <clears throat> that do that are masters of language. I mean, how many times have I bashed my head against uh, the rocks of Marlowe and some of those other people? Marlowe's great, but right. um but he doesn't have that. He doesn't have that that spark of, of human human understanding and yep. compassion that you're talking about. And I think that that's, you know, what makes Shakespeare great is the marriage of uh, not just understanding people, understanding character, also understanding story and understanding plot and compassion oozing through it. You take that and then you marry it to this incredible unmatched ability with language. His play, his plays and those speeches, they admit of so, so many different interpretations and so many different ways of telling those stories. I, I think I remember once uh, hearing some, some stage actor just give about eight versions in a row of uh, Once More to the Breach and uh, all the way from a whisper to, to a shout and everything in between. The, the words that, that he gave really you know, did admit of a lot of, you can put a lot into it or take a lot out of it, but really at the end of the day, that's not certainly not what I cared about most. Well, I think the thing that I'm thinking as you speak is that it's ridiculous how people try and pry those components apart. One of the reasons that Shakespeare has that compassion is because he developed a language and a vocabulary to have that compassion. And so the fact that it spoke to you is because of the poetry, but you don't have to sit here and tell us how great Shakespeare's poetry was. Right. It's it's inherent to what Shakespeare did in such a way that Yeah, and yeah. and you see you see a lot of a lot of writers, especially young writers, get caught up in they see the poetry and they see the flourishes and uh, they miss the meat. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, a lot of the most poserish writing you'll find are people that they've latched onto an author that's meant something and they, don't, they haven't even understood why that author has meant what he's meant to them. They think it's, you know, Elizabethan language or they think it's Homer, sing to me, O muse. They think it's all of the devices or ploys that that the authors use in service of their story and in service of their characters. And it's... Well, that's just some... That's the craft, but it misses the real mastery. Yeah. My number one kind of follows the same movement in my life. So my number two was Dickens. What I loved about Dickens was the character... The story, the plot, all these things that really moved me at the time. But what my number one did for me was awaken me to the, the authority and the moral agency of the author in a way that Dickens hadn't, so that they could create this whole universe for you that was just bigger and more and richer and more complete than anything that I had ever had seen up to that point. And so my number one is uh, is War and Peace. <laughs> By Tolstoy. Which you read when you were how old? I had just turned 16. Is that about around the time you found Shakespeare? Maybe I would have been about earlier than that. 14 or 14, 15 yeah. when I found I think that's freshman year of 
I can remember how I found Tolstoy. I had just read Dostoevsky and Kafka. So I had read The Brothers Karamazov, Karamazov, however you say it. And I had read The Trial by Kafka. And so I thought life had to be depressing and really distant and cold. It's kind of the mathematical stuff you were talking about. I was starting to realize Dickens wasn't he, – he could be silly and goofy and I was trying to find something else. And then this is just going to make me seem more lame. Well, there was a piano competition going on in downtown Fort Worth that I was going and watching. And then during one of the um, intermissions or whatever, it was like a long break during the middle of the day. I went to Barnes & Noble. And I picked up this edition that I have right here. We'll have a picture of it with the on, on warhornmedia.com. Yeah. It's now tattered and broken. But yeah, I've got it in my hands. I picked up this edition and sat down in one of the chairs and started reading and was just – I was blown away. And I couldn't quite understand why, but now it's Tolstoy like Shakespeare. He was – not just a good storyteller, but he was a great artist. And all the, all the elements of great novel writing kind of culminated in Tolstoy. So he could tell a great story, and all his characters are engaging. But there's this humanity to him, this compassion, like you were saying, that goes beyond the sentimentality of Dickens or this sort of cheapness that you get with some of the other writers. Yeah, yeah. I love Tolstoy. We're doing Anna Karenina next January, so prepare for that bookies but yeah you're right <laughs> you know one of the dumb things as i've not read shakespeare in a long long time and i actually have a fear of reading shakespeare that he's not gonna just hear the stupidity coming out of my mouth right mm -hmm. now that he's not gonna hold up right yeah. <laughs> i wonder if uh, shakespeare <laughs> shakespeare's gonna hold up right? <laughs> well I, I i actually wonder if my patience for working through the it'll the, still be there the yeah. language will still be there. I, with Tolstoy, it, go ahead. I it, I just wonder if it's how particular it was to Shakespeare. If it was just Shakespeare happened to be the the guy, or if it was Shakespeare. No. Yeah, I think to a certain extent, when we have a conversation like the one we're having now, you just have to acknowledge. I don't want to say everything in life is subjective or go that far, but things hit you at a certain point, and they hit you in a personal way, and. Yeah. You're never going to be able to sort out what the author brought to it and what you brought to it and what you just needed. Mm -hmm. But I think we're pretty safe to say that Shakespeare and Tolstoy are... <laughs> They're going to hold up. They're going to hold up. <laughs> yeah. great. They, they are difficult. Tolstoy writes these giant brick tomes, and Shakespeare writes in a language that requires you to stop all the time, uh, unless you're watching a movie version. And if I'm watching a movie version by myself, I stop all the time just to try and think things through, usually. Yeah. But, man, are they rewarding. Yeah, and it's worth having authors that mean that much to you in your life that you will go back to them over and over again. So I've, I read War and Peace every summer for about five years. Whoa. It meant that much to me. Wow. Up to that point, besides Dickens, really a lot of my reading was just because I wanted to be able to say that I was reading these things. Absolutely. You know, and you know, Famous Twain yeah, quote. I could say, uh, well, I've read Kafka. You know, mm. here I am. I've read Kafka in German. Yeah. Boom. Well, there you go. See, you outdid me. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I could tell people, yeah, I've read Dostoevsky. Yeah, I remember reading Crime and Punishment. I remember having it on my desk in high school and my literature teacher walking by and seeing it and going, hmm, being pleased with me for reading it yeah. and me glowing with pride as the other students shriveled in their seats around me. This is, they didn't care, but in my imagination, yeah. I was so cool. You were... And, you were the one who you had found this book. Right. It's almost 
like this was some good value in yourself and it was just stupid and nasty. And those of you homeschooled kids listening to this who might be tempted this way, just stop it and find an author who'll break you out of it and get you out of yourself because that's what Tolstoy was. I saw War and Peace. I grabbed it, you know, very likely with a pretentious thought, oh, I'm going to go sit and people are going to see me reading War and Peace. Mm-hmm. And then it just exploded the world that I had built to that point. And you had characters and things with the, things were at stake with these characters that had never been at stake in these other novels, or at least that I hadn't been aware of. So you had crises and you had tragedies and you had these experiences for these characters that were immense and big and they opened up worlds that I didn't know were there and gave me experiences that I didn't know. You know, you hear these things and they sound cliched about novels giving you experiences that you would never have, mm-hmm. but it is true. Yeah. And that's why the agency, like I said, of the author really does matter. The author that you're allowing to tell you this story, really, it matters. Mm-hmm. It matters if it's Tolstoy or J.K. Rowling, you know? Yeah. Yeah, that's not the last time you'll hear us say that on this podcast. It's interesting that I come at this, at literature, from a com- the complete opposite side of the spectrum, where for me, reading was always, always a guilty pleasure. Even liking the Shakespeare I was made to read, I sort of felt shame for liking it and loving it the way that I did, for it meaning as much to me as it did. I would never, ever have put Crime and Punishment or Brothers Karamazov or whatever it was on my desk mm-hmm. for people to see. I would have lit you up and made fun of you right. for doing that. And um, then we would have felt really proud. <laughs> like, man, he doesn't get it. <laughs> so It's just really interesting to hear you talk that way because mm-hmm. for me, it was always sort of always my guilty pleasure mm-hmm. and, and also a guilty pleasure that I fought desperately to protect. I, I did not. Most of the books I think we're going to hit here are books that I've never read because they were books that were assigned to me in school. And I'm going to I'm going to hit them for the first time. Well, that's why I thought it would be interesting to do this episode is to see the different places that we're coming from. Is it okay if I tell our listeners Jake was feeling a little bit vulnerable about me making him say Goosebumps and Grisham? Um but I thought it was important and interesting, and especially given that your testimony ends with Shakespeare, as it were. Um, you know, it feels a little... Your, your altar call moment. Like a, <laughs> <laughs> we need to know where you're coming, you know. Well, I was into drugs, and that was... You know. <laughs> but then I surpassed you all. Right. That's right. The master himself. Right. Um, we're not even sure existed. Right. <laughs> the master himself, Francis I have, Bacon. I don't have any patience for no, Shakespeare truthers. Neither do I. Yeah, yeah, me neither. I have about as much patience for them as I have for the Apostle Paul yeah. truthers. So come at us, Shakespeare truthers. Well, uh, what I'll, t- I'll tell you <laughs> what you are. <laughs> uh, I'll, t- I'll tell you what these, these truthers are. They're idiots. <laughs> and um, all God's people said amen. Amen. Uh, and I'll tell you why. Because they... Don't think that a humble craftsman like Shakespeare could have written great poetry. They think it has to be a dignitary or someone cool or Francis Bacon. It has to be, you know, they, they, they want to make it into a group of people. They don't think that God could have just given one guy, one humble Elizabethan playwright guy, this ability. And I think it's utterly snobby of them. And uh, bring it. Let's do it. Bring it. (laughs) It, It's just so stupid. You have no respect for the guy who can write. If you admit that there's a guy who actually wrote a play 
call it Hamlet, that that play exists, that he can't write other things like it, and that he can't change his voice, that he can't change the way that he approaches. Play. I mean, if you if he's able to write Hamlet, period, right. then he can. Do he's anything. better than you. Right. Yeah, he can do something you will never be able to do. It's Maybe just, allow him the the, the he, credit yeah. that he could do. The guy who has the wit and the uh, genius to write Hamlet could write The Tempest, could write Much Ado About Nothing, could write the sonnet cycles, right. could completely change English language forever. M- maybe when you write your version of Hamlet, then you can speak as an authority and say, well, there's nothing else I, I'm capable of doing. Yeah, yeah. This, this snobby <laughs> academic socialism has to die. <laughs> Kill it. <laughs> anyway, uh, I love you guys' choice for books and you guys as people. Yeah. I think the other thing that stands out to me about both of you guys' stories is that you both found authors that didn't flatter you. And in, in certain ways, I'm, I'm thinking back through, maybe, maybe it doesn't hold up for every entry. Maybe it holds up a little bit better with Jake's story than it does with Brandon's. But, you know, Brandon has fantastics and sort of stuff like that. And then Brandon, Jake has these books that just make him feel good to be reading these books. And then you finally find the guy that doesn't flatter you, that knows better than you. I mean, so much of reading, if you're doing it wrong, can just be sheer pride of, oh, I understand this, I understand that. Oh, that insight into human nature is the exact same sort of insight into human nature that I would have, you know. Mm, I understand exactly where he's coming from, and you just feel flattered. And yeah. recognizing yourself in a book or, or seeing a truth that you've experienced is obviously a wonderful thing and uh, part of the empathy that a great book creates. But what's even greater is when you find the, the, the person, like Jake said, that knows you better. Yeah. And uh, Tolstoy is exactly that same way for, for me. Tolstoy and Shakespeare are both those uh, reading Anna Karen and uh, every page it's like Tolstoy knows he knows something about humanity that I don't. He's seen deeper into life than I have, and uh, it's helpful to me. And it's good, and it gives me empathy, and it, I mean, for lack of a better way to say this, it makes me a better person to read those two in particular. And so, good choices. Thank you. Did you give us your final choice? Yeah, I did not give you my final choice. Uh, My final choice is similar. I was actually thinking about doing Tolstoy, Anna Karenina specifically, but I decided not to. Just to give our listeners a a peek behind the curtain we had to record this in uh, a separate segment actually Uh, what am i trying to say two weeks ago we were going to do our number one and then we had some problems that kept us from actually doing it at that point i was going to do tolstoy before that i had thought about doing ray bradbury not because i think he's so great now but because i did back then uh i've i've gone back and forth and i just finally decided that i had to do the obvious one that we've already spent three of our first podcasts talking about but she's my favorite um and she means a whole lot to me and i really like her and she did some of the same stuff i think she fits the conversation that we're having about our greats so i'm glad i picked her because uh who else could it be but Jane Austen, the complete works of, although I've never read Sense and Sensibility, but I'm going to get around to that one of these days. The first time that I read Pride and Prejudice and then read Emma and then read the rest of them, I just remember having a very similar experience to what you guys are talking about with Shakespeare and Tolstoy, just suddenly finding someone who was smarter than me, who was more moral than me, who, who understood things about life that I had no idea, who understood things specifically about men and women that short-circuited me. 
And it was exciting and it was fun and it put a smile on my face. I mean, reading Jane Austen for me is like one of those stupid Tums commercials where you see the person's stomach and it's glowing red because it's full of acid and then the the Tum or the Pepsid or whatever it is comes down and suddenly the, the blue warm glow st- starts to spread through their body. <laughs> That's a great. This is that's a great, a great analogy. Yeah, yeah. I, that that's what it is. She's a palliative. She's a medicine, hmm. especially because look, uh, I'm not persecuted. My the the world that I live in is a nice world. I love living in America in the 21st century. It's pretty good mostly, but it is hard when I when I when I open a newspaper. Or, I don't. I never open a newspaper <laughs> in my life. When you metaphorically open it. When I met when I, when I get on my news app or whatever it is, I have a news app actually, and it's realized that I click on the stories about like abortion and trans rights and stuff, so it gives me more of those. So now my feed is just like stories about stuff like that mostly, mm-hmm. and it just you can just feel so clobbered by the culture that we live in when it comes to sex. And again, I don't want to paint with too broad of a brushstroke. I don't want to be all, you know, it's a terrible time that we live in and we must go back to Jane Austen. No, that's not what I'm saying. I'm just saying it's awfully hard to know how to be a man these days. And it's awfully hard to know how to treat women and how to understand women and how to understand men. My parents had their problems. I didn't have necessarily always the best role models growing up. And so Jane Austen is good medicine and tasty medicine also in that way, in a way even that Shakespeare and Tolstoy aren't for me because they don't happen to be the guys that are stabbing at the heart of my particular problem or in our culture's particular problem. So not to be too high-handed about it. Jane Austen is a humorist. She's funny, but she means something specific to me, and I think she can mean something specific to more people if they would just read her. So just read. Just read. What would we say to uh, – was ever, after we did our Pride and Prejudice podcast, I had a number of young men say, oh, I don't want to read Jane Austen. It's about carriages and balls and stuff. That's dumb. I don't think there's a better response than yeah, that's, that's, just, that's just little and dumb. Well, I mean, like, I get it. I don't want to watch Downton Abbey. Show me your, 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 your breadth of mind. Yeah. Right. Indulge that's, me. Yeah. That's one thing about all three of these authors is – they all have lots of baggage associated with them, don't they? They all have a lot of baggage associated with them. And then if you would just read them, they would completely expand your universe. And if you read them without being stupid about it and just really hating it, because you can make yourself hate Jane Austen reading her. Oh, sure. If you just go about it saying, well, I'm not supposed to like Jane Austen, so I'm not going to like it, then you're, you're just – you have a little imagination. And that's one thing that all these authors can do for you is – Expand your imagination. Expand a, your moral imagination. Your moral in a good imagination, way. yeah. Um, it's different than math, and it's different than philosophy. And in all three of these cases, if you happen to not like the window dressing of any of these people, and in Tolstoy's case, if, if you think you don't like giant Russian novels, in Shakespeare's case, if you think you don't like poetry, or you th- and in Jane Austen's case, if you don't think you don't like balls and carriages, realize that these people, these three in particular... Not every author, but these three authors are universal. And Jane Austen could be set in space, and Shakespeare has been set in an awful lot of places. (laughs) And I don't necessarily mind, but we'll talk about that when we get to Shakespeare. My larger point is that these people have universal application. You can hate balls and carriages in the landed gentry and still learn and enjoy an awful lot from Jane Austen. You can not care a whit about Russia before communism and still get a ton out of whatever that guy's name is. 
Tolstoy. Tolstoy. And you can not care about Elizabethan drama or about the Danes or about Venice, whatever whatever Shakespeare's subjects. There, the, in all three of these cases, the subject is humanity. And if you care about humanity, if you want to know yourself. Yeah, that's what I was just thinking. The only way that you can read these you may not be able to get past the Elizabethan language of Shakespeare. That's fine. It's hard for a lot of people. But the only reason to not like Jane or I assume Tolstoy, I've not read Tolstoy yet, but is you just don't love, you don't know yourself at all and you don't want to know yourself. You're not capable of knowing yourself or you don't love people or you don't love humanity or something like that. I, I just can't conceive of how. Yeah. So stop it. Don't just read books that flatter you, even complicated books that flatter you, like I think Dostoevsky might be for some people. You Mm -hmm. you You can read a book that's awfully difficult, and you can read it because you're an arrogant jerk. Um, yeah. And you can read Shakespeare and Jane Austen because you're an arrogant jerk, and you can learn all the wrong lessons from them. But and you can also refuse to read fiction altogether because you're an arrogant jerk. <laughs> right. <laughs> and because you think that philosophy books and biographies will teach you just as much about life. They won't. There's a lot of wisdom that goes beyond just philosophy. Well, if I'm going to give the rousing summary, let's just go back to the Bible. Yeah. And how did God choose to instruct us and teach us he gave us history he gave us poetry he gave us parables and he gave us exposition too but really in small doses we're we're not meant to be cold sterile abstract thinkers yeah what fiction gives us is it gives you with a good writer like shakespeare austin tolstoy they give you the truth and you could state it coldly, but they mix that with experience and emotion. And maybe we don't, as modern men, want to dabble in that because we don't want to be, what, effeminate? I guess. It's because we've seen the dangers. We've seen people become completely effeminate by giving themselves over to pure emotionalism, by giving themselves over to a wicked excess of emotion and story unanchored by truth. Complete misunderstanding of history too one of the most naive things i've ever heard someone say is that poetry is effeminate by nature that shit was dumb and this person <laughs> must have had keats in mind and certainly didn't Lord have king Byron. david in mind they didn't have king david i won't say who it was they didn't have paradise lost they didn't have john dunn in mind or any of these homer beowulf <laughs> herbert herbert yeah these I think was yeah Shakespeare poetry is not effeminate literature is not effeminate in nature it's the way you approach it and it's what you choose to read and the podcasts you choose to listen to and you won't get three more manly proponents you have chosen wisely literature just exudes from this room Mm -hmm. seeps out the doors right the the (laughs) testosterone is suffocating in your (laughs) (laughs) This 
episode of The Booking was written and produced by me, Nathan Alberson. It was performed by Nathan Alberson, Brandon Chastine, and Jake Mensel. You can go to warhornmedia.com for all kinds of other great content, including back episodes of this very podcast. So we've got a book list up at warhornmedia.com of all the books we'll be reading in 2016. If you want to read ahead, Room the Bell Tolls, Huck Finn, Dracula, Anna Karenina, other books... Christmas Carol. Beowulf. Beowulf. Gilead. Gilead, yeah. Dark Horse. The Dark Horse. (laughs) So go to warhornmedia.com. 